Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate that. Um, we've got a really strong episode today. Um, two terrific conversations. Um, a, a conversation on craft uh, with Rodney Barnes, who knows what he's talking about. We'll talk about talk to him in a minute. Um, first up, though, uh, I've got Yalin Chang, who is on the WGA negotiating committee. Um, and Yellen, uh, you may know, she, she's she been a writer for 20, almost 20 years now, uh, having started out on ER. She worked on such shows more recently as Supergirl and is currently, or was right before the strike hit, the co-showrunner of uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Yellen came on specifically to talk about um, the WGA proposals regarding episodic TV and writer's room. Um, and and the way those proposals were met by the AMPTP back in May, which led to our current situation. We are now just about in month three of the strike. It's uh, hot out there, but uh, as Yalin and I talk about, you know, the optimism is still really high. Uh, certainly getting SAG after out there with us, getting the actors out on the picket lines with us these past uh, this past couple weeks has been a great shot in the arm. But to be honest, uh, in my time out picketing before that, I never saw the enthusiasm flag. Um, it's kind of amazing and, and really impressive and speaks to, you know, how much we all believe in this fight um, and how much I think, and again, as you'll hear Yellen talk about, how much we, we are on the right side of, of what's fair. So here's a brief chat with uh, the lovely and very smart Yellen Chang. Right now, I'll just say hi, Yalin. Thanks for being here. Hi, Ben. Pleasure to be here. You are on the negotiating committee. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, and and you've been sent to me today uh, to talk about one of the proposals that the WGA has given to the AMPTP. Specifically, we want to talk about um, proposals about episodic TV, and even more specifically, I think you want to talk about writers' rooms, right? Yes. Uh, preserving the writers' room, saving the writers' room from destruction means the same as saving television. Let's take sort of a step back before we get in and talk about like how, how are writers' rooms threatened um, at this negotiation. Well, what's interesting is that when the tech companies came in, they saw how we put together TV and um, they thought, well, why don't you just, you know, do the same work that you do or more work with fewer people and less time? And we'll save, you know, pennies on the dollar that way. Um, so we've seen you know, a, a growth to 50% of our writers working at minimum. We've seen over the past decade, TV budgets balloon double over the past decade, while TV writer pay has gone down 23% adjusted for inflation. Um, and um, we see, yeah, the companies just asking showrunners and writers to 
write more in less time for less money. So I feel like this labor action, it's, uh, you know, it's extrapolatable, if that's a word, to, you know, every labor action where your company bosses just say, you know, do more work quicker for less money. And um, as you know, because you've done a million writer interviews, and you've also gone really in depth into writers' rooms, there is this beautiful but delicate creative ecosystem that is responsible for some of the best television in the world ever made in history. And that comes from um, robust writers' rooms. And um, so it's very, you know, it's not even penny wise, it's penny dumb and pound foolish to try and degrade the writers' room this way. You know, uh, he uh, calculated the writing budget to be 0.59% of the overall budget of his show, you know, but we all know that the script is way more valuable than 0.59%. I mean, a speaking as a writer, it's like the plays the thing, right? If it's not, whatever, the cliche, if it's not right, you know, on the page, it'll never be right on the stage. You shouldn't even proceed to the stage if it's not right on the page. It is, you know, to me as a writer, the most important thing. Um, so, uh, so unfortunately, we are having to take this strike action to save writers' rooms and thus save TV. What are the AMPTP's arguments against extended writers' rooms or the traditional writers' rooms? Um, well, what's interesting is that they seem to have no argument. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it's fascinating. They have not actually put forward any argument to defend why they are degrading writing as a career and a profession and writer's rooms. Um, I think that, you know, they're just looking at dollar signs and, um, you know, they used to count uh, whatever episode numbers, but we now know that, you know, these streaming shows, even if the episode numbers are fewer, the amount of time that it is taking to make these shows is longer and longer. And so from a writing point of view, your work should be valued as how much you get paid per week times the number of weeks you work. And somebody creative is going to have to come up with a whole new way to pay uh, labor. And we think we've come up with a way. Let's let's again speak uh, both, you know, more generally and more personally to you. You've been in a number of great writers rooms. Um, in your experience, why is it important? What does a writer's room bring that an individual writer doesn't bring? And then, you know, how can we apply that thing that a writer's room gets us to the entirety of production? Well, um, two things. I mean, I think that the writer's room, when functioning well, is sort of like magic. You know, you there are things that you can't figure out. A lot of writing is problem solving. And I've always found it really astonishing and miraculous and amazing how when I um, am facing a story problem, and if I can't see my way out of it, 
I will just take it to the room. And literally, you know, in half an hour, we've figured it out. You know, there's something amazing about this collective brain when everyone is rowing in the right direction. Um, If you set up the room correctly, if you've made it a place where people feel safe and free to do their best work. You know, I think the reason why we're really trying to save the studios from themselves is because after 23 years writing for TV, I really don't think there's anything that gives you a better return on investment than a writer, you know, because first of all, there's nothing that costs you more than shooting stuff that you're not going to use, right? That a day of shooting can be anywhere from uh, on an hour long drama from like a quarter million dollars to a million dollars a day. You shoot a couple scenes and they end up on the cutting room floor. You've just wasted so much money that could be better spent on other things. You know, it, and um, a writer is the person who will get you to the right thing. You know, so every time you put a script into pre-production, what's happened to me is the pre-production team will come back and they'll say, okay, your episode is $2 million over budget. So now you have to figure out how to tell the same story and get to the same emotional places you need to get for the serialized storyline to work minus $2 million. And only a writer can say, oh, you know, that those scenes we were going to shoot in the library and the museum and the batting cage, let's all do it in this one room we have on stage and try and get these same story points out. Like literally only a writer can do that without sacrificing the integrity of the story on the show that I work on The Handmaid's Tale, they get it. They understand. They are pretty close to the creative process. I think that many, many layers above, there is a lack of comprehension about the importance of a writer when the show is in production, when you're cutting the show um, in post-production. You know, I have a friend who has this horror story who was working on a $20 million an episode show for Netflix, who when it came time to post, um, you know, Netflix wouldn't offer any money. You've heard this, that they, you know, there are a lot of places now that force writers to work for free in post-production. But as every, all writers know, the last writing happens during post and the last draft happens in post. Um, You know, so they, um, so he refused to, at first they offered him half minimum and they, you know, they, he refused to take it at some point and they just stuck the visual effects supervisor and put him in charge of post. So suddenly the visual effects supervisor is rewriting and cutting scenes together and the story makes no sense. And it is a, just a, it's a horror story. It's a horror, (laughs) it's a horror show. Luckily your, your experiences have been good, but we've seen like the cautionary tale, right? Like we've seen some of these big streamers when the story is not working during production they just throw more money at it instead of getting you know taking care of those problems up front and and having the writers be involved all the way through having a proper writers room even um are you able to talk about exactly um what the WGA is proposing yeah i mean we you know i think that everyone's seen the two pager at this point where we are requiring um you know, a minimum number of writers be employed and, you know, we're proposing that half that staff is employed during production and that you have at least one writer on during post, Um, you know, in addition to um, proposals for viewership-based residual and 
you know, minimums increases and for comedy variety writers that they also get, you know, um, minimums, you know, a guaranteed second step. Um, so, you know, we, these are our opening offers. They don't cost that much money <laughs> is the amazing thing. I mean, we're at the time that, you know, the AMPTP walked out of the room and refused to talk to us anymore. Um, we were $343 million apart for, you know, 343 for a year divided between whatever those eight humongous studios and the other hundred members, that is really not that much, you know? Um, I mean, one factoid that really stands out to me is that we asked Netflix for something like $68 million a year and they spend $110 million a year on private jet travel, you know? So why they, wanted to shut down the town for something that they can totally afford is, uh, you know, we are, we asked Apple for $17 million, you know, Apple can well afford that. Right. Um, so it's, you know, I think that it's, uh, um, there it's clear there was this anonymous Apple TV exec who talked about how the problem is, when negotiating with labor, you don't want to inspire other workers, right? So it's not just that, you know, the writers are that we're fighting for our fair share. It's that we might inspire other workers, other laborers, you know, on top of an economic issue. I think it's somewhat of a moral issue too. You should pay people for their contribution and you shouldn't just keep squeezing people. You know, we've there are so many horror stories of writers, showrunners who are left all by themselves to do the work of an entire writing staff, and they have to make themselves unwell, physically sick to finish the job. Um, and then it's never going to be as good as if they didn't if they didn't have the resources and their support. Um, so let me ask uh, before we wrap up: what is what's giving you hope these days? Uh, do you see a way out? Oh yeah, I mean, I have full confidence that we will win. What gives you that confidence? <laughs> well, the actors joining us was very helpful. Um, the press, by and large, being on our side is amazing. That didn't happen in the 07-08 strike. Um, I'm just so inspired by the solidarity and the unity um, of our membership and of people outside. You know, those BU students who, you know, booed David Saslov during commencement, they didn't have to take on our issue, you know, the fact that they were shouting, pay your writers just shows, you know, how sort of easily understandable and just our causes, I think. Um, I think that, you know, we're in a very labor friendly culture right now, um, luckily. Um, and um, I remember the 0708 strike well, and there was a lot of internal division. Um, amongst the writers, and you had other unions who were not very supportive of us. And it's a whole different world now where we have the support of all the Hollywood unions and um, and people on the outside seem to really understand that, you know, you will have um, CEOs one, on one side making kind of unconscionable amounts of money and renovating their second super yachts at the same time that, you know, workers are really suffering and we're responsible for the shows that, uh, you know, make all these companies money. And so I think there's a fundamental issue of 
fairness that people really understand. So I'm really, I've been given hope by that. And then just also seeing all the writers on the lines and now the actors too, you know, there's just this huge groundswell of, of support um, that I think is, you know, as long as we can stick together, we can win. Uh, well, having folks like you on the negotiating committee on uh, does give makes me optimistic. So thank you. Let me ask uh, before you go, what are you doing uh, for your own mental health? What are you doing to keep yourself sane these days? Oh, yeah, good question. Um, I, um, I'm really just spending, you know, when I'm um, not uh not doing um, NEDCOM stuff or picketing or like thinking about the strike. I mean, I am thinking about the strikes kind of all the time, but, <laughs> you know, I'm hanging out with my kids and spending time with my family. Um, and so that, so, so that's been, that that's been nice. I mean, I do wish that I was, you know, I do wish that I was working. We had great plans for the, final season of The Handmaid's Tale, we um, were very excited about it. And we had to stop working on it. And that's always, you know, sad. Um, but we'll get right back to it when, um, you know, when the studios offer us a fair and reasonable deal. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for chatting today. Thank you, Ben. Union song, union battle, all added up, what a song. Thanks again to Yellen Chang for that conversation and those insights. Um, before we get to the next piece of this podcast, which I hope you will listen to, it's I found it really helpful myself. Um, I want to urge you to please check out my newsletter, um, benblacker.substack.com. It's called Rewriting a Very Clever Pun. Um, I love doing it. It's been really fun writing about craft and and a little bit about business but these days i'm mostly concentrating on craft because i'm mostly concentrating on craft for myself um generally the stuff that i'm writing about uh in rewriting is the stuff that i'm working on the kinds of crafty things that i need to remind myself about some of the more popular newsletters over on rewriting uh have been really specific craft things um including one that i wrote about second acts um, and one that I wrote about, you know, having written, which is a thing that almost every writer who has been on the podcast has talked about. Their favorite part of writing is having written. Um, and so I sort of explore that idea. Um, there's also a really, if I do say so myself, great recent um, entry called Crepe Expectations, which I would ask you to check out. Um, and it includes a terrific story from my friend Casey St. Ange about a painting of prints that she has in her house from this artist, Dan Lacey, who does paintings with pancakes in them. And Casey commissioned a, a piece from him, uh, and it's a terrific story. So again, that's over on benblacker.substack.com. Um, it will hopefully, you know, be helpful to you and your process as well as, you know, you'll get to hear a great story about <laughs> Prince from Casey, who is one of the funniest people I know. Um, if you can become a paid subscriber to the Substack, um, paid subscribers get to attend a monthly live Zoom Q&A in which 
you ask the questions of professional writers who join us uh, and answer those questions. We recently had one with uh, She-Hulk showrunner Jessica Gao. It was, of course, full of great information, really terrific practical advice, uh, and also very funny because Jessica is always very funny. Um, but we've had you know other great ones um, with folks like Sarah Gamble, Javi Griot Markswatch, Jose Molina, um, so many terrific, smart people. Um, and the only way to attend those and to listen to all of the past ones is to become a paid subscriber over at benblacker.substack.com. Please check it out. For now, though, please enjoy this conversation with Rodney Barnes. Uh, Rodney is a terrific writer and a lovely guy. Uh, started out on shows like My Wife and Kids and Everybody Hates Chris, uh, comedies, which which we'll talk about a little bit, and then transitioned at a certain point to hour-longs like Runaways, American Gods. Most recently, he was the co-showrunner and co-creator of Winning Time, The Lakers Show. Um, he also is the writer of a great comic book, which I would urge you to check out, called Philadelphia. What Rodney wanted to talk about today is rewriting. Uh, so here's my conversation with Rodney Barnes. Thanks for listening. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! And that's it. We're doing it. Rodney Barnes is back. Rodney, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I was just saying, I love the topic that you suggested uh, as we do these craft-centered episodes you you wrote back saying the patience to rewrite yes um now look you've written on a lot of different shows you've written in a lot of different media um rewriting we know is part of the process before we get into <laughs> finding the patience to rewrite i want to hear if you can think of any like bad rewriting stories when you started out, was it a difficult part of your process? It was. Um, I come from sitcoms. That was my first foray into professional writing. And there's a ticking clock on a sitcom. You know, certainly the four camera ones I used to work on where every week you have to make one. So you don't have a whole lot of time to rewrite and think. And, you know, you're, you're more or less moving, you know, really, really fast. And I thought that's how everything went. I thought that's what the nature of um, professional writing was. And then I started to write drama. And I had a friend say, it's almost there. You know, when I wrote an outline and uh, it was a really detailed outline based upon what I knew an outline to be. And I went back and I worked on it a couple of times. And he said, yeah, this is good. We'll fix it in the script. And I was still like, okay, I, don't, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm going to go forward. And I wrote the script, and the script was solid. And the way my mind worked back then, you turn the script in, and then the network and executives tell you what's wrong with it, and then you make all of your adjustment adjustments then. And the gentleman I was working with was like, no, 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 that's not what we do on this side of the fence. You have to present your best effort. And this is a good effort, but it's not your best. And emotionally and psychologically, I hadn't um, made that connection still. Um, I was still kind of operating from 
You did it. It's good. It's solid. All the words are spelled correctly. It's formatted properly. We're good. Where's the check? And I started to work on each scene. And I remember working on really on one scene and it got really, really good, like way better than it was initially. And he responded to that scene in a way that I, a writer wants. It's like that validation chum that I think you're looking for when someone reads a scene that they dig. And then it kind of hit me like, what if I did the whole script this way? What if I went over every scene and just kneaded it like dough and, you know, really brought out everything. And this may seem obvious to some, but it wasn't obvious to me. Um, And I started to work on it and work on it and work on it to the point where I think I did like 40 or 50 drafts. And it became like, um, Sisyphus pushing the rock up a hill like you know is this thing ever going to be finished but I kept finding new things and I meditate on a scene and I knew it was almost there but it wasn't quite there and when I finished and I finally turned it in it was the script that changed my career um, from being a sitcom writer to being seen as something different and I was like oh okay you know this is the difference between me and a lot of my heroes in writing who were primarily drama writers. And I was like, okay, where do I find the stamina? And in between that process, I'd hit send on a lot of scripts and a lot of things where people would come back and go, eh, it's good, eh, you know, but not really respond in a way that um, was ideal. And so once I started to really put all of myself in every script and every scene and every line of dialogue, an action line, it was like, okay, this is what it is. And this is the difference between me and the people that I admire. They do this. And um, just as a practice of being, and I had to learn to do it. And even now when a producer or an executive is like, where's the script? Where's the script? Where's the script? My instinct is to hit send, but I've also come to learn that you can hit send and get it to them quickly. But if it's not what they want, then they're not happy. I'd rather them be mad at me because the script is two or three weeks late and be happy with the end result because they'll forget that they were mad if they get something they really want. They won't. They'll be double mad if they had to wait two or three weeks more and it's not what they want. So, you know, it it really is a thing of um, patience, emotional emotional endurance, and just stamina to stay with a story until it's what it should be rather than praising yourself because you've completed a document. Right. Just getting to the end doesn't mean that you're done. Yeah, no, that's the beginning. Getting to the end is the beginning. Um, So I want to, I want to dig in on some of like these specifics that you look for when you are digging in scene to scene, line to line. But first I want to take a step back and talk about this idea, because I, I know this plagues me too, and, and maybe it is having come from comedy and now writing other things, but like this idea that everything's going to change. We know down the line, everything's going to change, you know, whether it's because we're going to get a bunch of notes, good and bad, or because we're going to get new collaborators in directors or, or actors, or just because, you know, we're working on someone else's show and they're going to change it. So how do we rewrite knowing things are going to change, but still do that work, you know, still make it the best draft you can make it. 
I think there's a part of it that's yours, and then there's a part of it that's the collectives. You can't really guess or, um, you know, intuitively know what the world is going to uh, give you notes on, respond to, not respond to. And sometimes executives respond just because they think they're supposed to respond. Um, if you can be a good taste tastemaker of your own work and know within yourself that this is the best representation of what this can be based upon your abilities and you can push yourself to get it there um i think um that's the the dividing line and the bridge between what you're talking about it's like if you could put out of your head that there are going to be notes and that there's going to be changes and all these other things and to be able to accept that without contempt you know, that's the hard part. If if you can just develop the ability to embrace notes, I think um, I say this, I've told the story before about my comic book writing. The first book, first comic book I wrote was Falcon for Marvel. And I had no idea how to write a comic book. Like I thought I did because I knew how to write movies and TV shows that it's like, it's obvious, can't be that much harder. But there's a difference with working with art that doesn't move than working with um, actors who interpret what you're writing into their own voices and cameras that do things. And there's this weird thing called Twitter where people can communicate and tell you how much they hate you. And um, I remember getting to issue three, and that's usually how long it takes before a consensus is built for your stuff. And there was this one guy, and he was talking about how much he hated my book. And he would screen capture um, dialogue that he hated. And I was in the movies. And I remember my phone because I'm a neurotic TV writer producer. I'm holding my phone and my phone is buzzing. And it's Twitter. And there's this guy. And all weekend long, he's doing this thing. And I'm hating him. I'm hating me. Um, I'm never going to write a comic book ever again. This is horrible. I'm horrible. Um, I just want to crawl off someplace and die. I, I've lived a good life. You know, this should be good. And when I was able to sort of separate myself from my pain and my hurt and my guilt and shame and all the things I walk with in life, and I could listen to his complaint, there was some legitimacy to what he was actually saying. He didn't have to say it the way he said it, <laughs> sure. but there was something in it that was true. And I wrote the fourth issue and it was the best issue, I think, of the entire run. And I look at it as being my first because I was able to separate me from the process and really get to a place where I could hear what he was saying. Um, he was saying it from the galley. You know, he was, he was the audience, but there was truth in it. And so once I'm, I was able to just universally be able to take a note I'll still have that look of contempt on my face. But I will give you that distance between my contempt and truth, and truth trumps contempt. So, um, you know, you never know. All of that long-winded thing to say, sometimes you're going to get notes back that help what it is that you're doing. It's according to where you're getting them from, who you're getting them from, um, and the intent under the note. 
Uh, and usually if there's a consensus, it's probably something there. And when you see something that's in your head so clearly, my goal isn't to entertain just myself, it's to entertain an audience. And so I look at those notes as the audience. And it's a preview of how the audience is going to receive whatever it is that I've written. So it's really a blessing in disguise, although it feels like a curse. <laughs> and it is, I mean, doing that draft for a showrunner or doing that draft for a director or executives is, it gets to the core of what we do in so many ways, because it is that balance of ego and humility, right? We have to hand in that draft thinking, yes, I've done it. I've delivered to you the greatest script. I did what you asked me to do. Yeah, but leaving that window open for yes of course there's room for other voices and for this to change and and hopefully improve um i want to ask now about that process of digging in you know that you learned so many years ago that must be second nature in many ways now when you go back into a script and when you're going scene to scene when you're going line to line what's your brain doing what's the stuff you're looking for first um there's a there's an inner war going on between my ego and um, truth and experience and also the pain of killing babies. You know, there'll be a moment where there's this line that I thought was so brilliant two days ago. And at the moment, it might still have some worth. But when I go back and I look at it, maybe it's not for this story. Maybe it's not for this scene. Maybe it's not for this moment. And I really dig the line and the line really makes me feel good about myself, but it doesn't belong in this story. And I'll go over it again and again and again and use every form of reasoning that I can find to keep it there. But at the end of the day, it has to die. And if, you know, you're going to be a professional and you have the ability to discern the difference between what should or shouldn't be there. And killing babies is the hard part. It sounds like so much of it is about really asking yourself and being honest about what serves the story. Exactly. Yes, very much so. So how do you start to even discern that? I did a thing before the internet existed because I'm that old or at least existed in a way that people could talk to each other like we're doing right now, where I read a lot of scripts and some of the scripts were almost like poetry and like they could be published as, um, as really works of art in and of themselves. And one of them was uh, a movie I worked on the green mile written by Frank Darabont adapted by Frank Darabont. And it was like the perfect script, like the way every word mattered and flowed directly into the next word. And I'd never read a script that concise, clean, like it was an experience where you could read that script that was 120 pages, you know, in 10 minutes because it was so effortless to read. And it was such, I wasn't thinking, and, and I have my own form of anxiety, so my mind is always running. Um, but while I was reading this document, I wasn't thinking about anything else. I was so engrossed in the document. And I was like, if I could do that, I might have a career. If I could write to a place where I'm just, any thought that doesn't directly connect to the thought prior to um, shouldn't be there. And 
a lot of people would say, okay, well, that's just plot. Where does that leave room for, you know, they're seen sometimes in movies and TV shows where a character's just on a stage and he's doing his moment so that you get to know that character. You can find those places in there and they fit character-wise. So you're still in your flow, but you've earned the right for this character to have a character moment. You know, Breaking Bad scripts, I've read some like that that are really good like that too. Um, and they just fit the world that's being created and the story, the narrative that's in front of me right now. It doesn't mean like, you know, and I know people who are incredibly plot driven and it's annoying to me sometimes because all the pieces fit like a puzzle. I'm just bored out of my mind because it's so logical that the logic strains out life. You know, it strains out special moments where a character will do something. I think of um, Papa Pope's speech in Scandal, you know, when he's talking to this guy. And it's like in any other story, that doesn't have to be there. It doesn't move the story forward. It doesn't do anything. But it speaks to how that character sees life and sees culture through the prism of his own anger and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I think you need those moments, but you have to earn them. And you have to earn them within being concise, 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 and I'm building to this crescendo. And then I come back and it doesn't take me out of the story. And I think um, for me, you know, I am the student to this day of the masters that I've studied. And I have my own voice. I have my own thing that I do. And I'm very proud and blessed to be able to have a thing. But I still look to you know, those who have come before me or walking with me who do it really, really well. And I humble myself to what it is that they do and try to do better through that and develop my taste through that, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and, and you develop your voice through that too, right? I mean, you look at this stuff that speaks to you and then, you know, this is what this podcast has been, right? How do they make these things? How, what's the blueprint for it and what's the language of it? And then how do you adapt that to your voice and your interests? Um, I think like you've given a couple of great examples already, but it was there other stuff that you've looked at on the page specifically over the years that that is like a good example of, of doing this job? I, I always recommend a book, um, uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, who talks about resistance. Um, and I go back to that book because the res sometimes not continuing forward and needing a script and going through that painful process of rewriting comes down to resistance. Just don't have the ability emotionally. Why am I still with this? Maybe I've overwritten it. And your voice, that inner, um, that inner voice that is not your friend is telling you you've done enough. You know, and the insecurity that comes with writing of it just being you and the work. Sometimes that insecurity can say you need another voice to come in and, you know, tell you something else. But if you can push that voice off to the side, because I don't think any of us ever remove it and just become one with the work. Um, there's a level of focus that I found is necessary to be able to be objective about the work. Um, and through each draft, as I'm rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, I'm actually becoming more focused and more in tune with the work 
I'm building a relationship with the document. And as I'm building that relationship with the document, I'm becoming more honest with it. It's almost like raising a child. When you have a baby that's crying, you know, you see some things that, you know, the baby likes this, the baby doesn't like that. And if I do this, it stops crying and you get some things. But as the child gets older, you start to build a different kind of bond because through communication and through observation and all of this. And I think a similar thing for me happens with a script and where I had an original idea that brought me to the page. And that idea continuously evolves the deeper I get into the story. And sometimes it'll take me in a different, the story wants to go in a different direction than I wanted to go. And I can either stand on, this is my story and my original. And I did that. I did that with, um, there's a book that I, a comic book that I write called Philadelphia. And um, I was adapting the pilot for um, television. And my first draft was, strictly what the book was because I wrote the book with television in mind and people read it. They liked it, but it wasn't like, it wasn't what I wanted it to be. And I was like, but this is what it's supposed to be. And it's supposed to be this. And once I was able to step back from it, it was like, no, the television show wants to be something different than the book. And they'll have some of the same things but they won't be exactly the same. You have to get to know some of the characters on television differently than you do in the book. And I have to be able to have the humility to step back from my own hubris and say, this is, I have to see this for what it wants to be rather than what I want it to be. And if I can do that without completely destroying myself emotionally, um, I think I can see it objectively and hear what the world is telling me it wants to be. It's so funny that you you went through that experience, even adapting your own material. You know, like who should know this better than you? And yet you're still surprised by it. That's what I was standing on. That's the arrogance that I was standing on was I did this. I was the God of this thing. I created this thing. So I know better than everyone. And when I was able to step away from that and lower, you know, that voice of arrogance and narcissism and any other word that comes in that's negative and really commit myself to the thing and not what I thought the thing should be, then the ideas started to flow in a much more powerful way as to what the thing could be based upon my marriage to the idea of what it was going to be. And I, I'm glad before I sent it out wide um, I was able to take a step back and not necessarily destroy it. It's interesting too, I think, um, that even with something like that, you were able to gain the distance. You were able to work through and see that like this wants to be something else. Is there stuff at this phase in your your writing career, again, having you've written a lot of pages <laughs> that you find you're still precious about? Not as much. Um, there's an initial preciousness because if you believe in something enough to actually do it and you put the work in, you're going to feel a way there's a connection to the work, but there's also a maturity to the professionalism where if someone comes along and they say something or they feel something, um, I'm not going to not listen to that. And I'm going to ruminate enough over it 
to where, okay, if they're right, the, the, the beautiful thing about a writer's room when it functions properly and about people working together on a thing is that truth trumps everything. Whether it comes out of the mouth of a staff writer or Mr. Hollowed, legendary writer guy at the end of the table, um, wherever the truth comes from, the truth is the strongest thing ever. And the the... The thing is to find out is to be able to remove yourself from your own ego and your own process and your own bullshit to be able to see the truth or to hear the truth when it when it comes to you and not be offended and not be hurt, and not be any of those things. And if you are those things, really shorten the, the leash as to how long you're going to feel those things. Um, but that really comes with time. You know, it really does come with time. And has has it come to when you are revising yourself? Um, it's easier to revise me. I think um, there's a saying about intelligence, like the smart person is smart because they know that they don't know anything, you know. And it's like when you do this enough, you realize that nothing's perfect. Like it's always a working document, and so someone says that's a wrap, and it's done. And even then, it could be rewritten and edited. Um. But it really is a, a um, it's a virtue that it takes time to cultivate in some. It did for me. It took a good 13, 14 years um, because I could say, I've done a lot. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm pretty good in this business. I've done relatively well. Who's to tell me? Blah, blah, blah. But then when you realize you're um, a lot of that is hubris and um arrogance you're able to push it to the side you know if you want to be better if you want to be the best version you want to self-actualize as a writer and say okay this is i want to be the best version of myself it comes down to humility it really does come down to humility whether it's your relationship with the page or relationship with reality you know um and those are different things you know, and sometimes I think because the pages are tangible that people look at the pages as reality. That's just an idea. That's a template for a thing. It's a lump of clay that needs to be molded and needs to be needed and needs to develop an identity. And, you know, again, the writers that I've been around that I deeply respect have the ability to step out of the way from themselves and really humble themselves. And when I've had the opportunity to work with the greats, they're so vulnerable. They're so open. They're so, um, it's not what you think it is. It's not like, son, this is what we're going to do. And you're going to da, 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 da. It's actually the complete opposite of that to where, you know, I want you to, um, as a gentleman I worked with the other day, I will not say his name. I wish I could say his name. Um, he's a Pulitzer prize winning writer and he just wrote a play and, um, beautiful play based upon a legendary film. And he must have written for it. He asked me to read a part, even though I'm not an actor. And he was having a Zoom table read. And he must have written four drafts before he sent the final draft. And throughout the process, when it was over and we were done and it was brilliant, you could hear such vulnerability in this guy. You know, and to the point where when he's asking for notes, I'm almost afraid to give him a note 
because I don't want him to think that I think that there's something wrong um, because there's nothing wrong. It's just uh, there's so much beauty. But yeah, but he's open to the process. He's ready and willing to hear it. Yeah, like almost eager. Um, I want to ask before we wrap up just about like the nuts and bolts, the the day in, day out for you of, you know, if you're not working on a deadline and it seems like you're always on deadline for everything, but we're in a strike right now. Maybe you're working on some of your own stuff. Left your own devices. What does a timeline for a script look like for you? How many drafts are you doing uh, and how long does it take? It was funny. I, I sent someone a script to read the other day. And they said, when I see that V35 on there, what does that mean? I was like this version 35, you know, like, you know, whatever. Um, comic books typically attend drafts. Um, movies are typically 30 drafts. Um, around the same for TV shows, pilots. Once I get to know the show, I'm able to, you know, I, I the relationship has evolved to the place where I'm not, there's not so many unknowns. But if it's a pilot, um, I'm in the 30s, easy. Because you know? in the middle of the night, I could have an idea. She doesn't need to die. She doesn't need to die. She doesn't need to die now. Maybe she can die later. But right now it's important because she needs who's going to watch the kid. You know, it could be it's that type of thing. And all along, I've come up with this scene with the music and everything where she dies. And then all of a sudden she doesn't die. So once she doesn't die, it affects everything else along the way that has to change because she didn't die. So none of the other characters have to make the adjustment that in, in initially I thought they had to make. And, um, you know, so it, it varies, but easy in the thirties, the first 10 are fear, insecurity, angst, pressure, you know, all kinds of, again, negative adjectives. So, and it feels like it takes about 10 to sort of get a handle on this thing. And, and at what point does it feel like fine tuning for you? There's that point when I get in the 30s where I'm, I know the script. I know what I'm going to say. I'm confident with what it is. Um, and once I get in there and I know, and sometimes and when I say in the 30s, <laughs> excuse me, that last seven or eight drafts really is more fine-tuning. It really is more of um, nothing major is changing. But, you know, I need to cut a couple of pages out. Does this character really need to talk as much? Did I do I need that soliloquy? Um, do I need that set? Can I afford it? Um, that type of thing. And then, how long does this whole process, on average, take you for a feature or a pilot? For a pilot, a couple of weeks, because there's the fear I approach it with that sort of deadens the flow, and then once it catches fire and I start to feel good about myself, it speeds up. And um, once it speeds up, that's when the first week is the vomit draft. The second week is rewrite, 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 rewrite. By the end of the second draft, by the end of the second week, it's what it's going to be. But it's it, that the points that make it whatever it is that differentiates me from any other writer, I find in that second to third week. Whatever it is that I do, the Rodney thing, my voice and all of that, 
um, it happens at the end of that process because then all of the other the, the insecurities and fears and all that all that's out of the way now. I've got a thing, and I'm confident in the thing um, to a degree. And now it's like okay. This part, the third act really was special. It made me feel really good. How can I go back in the first and second? Find that in there. How can I go in really, really? I want to grab the reader from page one. I want to do, is this the best that I can do? You know, is there something else? And then this is when the point when I let people I trust read it. And I remember having a script, a Netflix script, like right before the strike, I had to turn in and someone read the script and they said, I don't like any of these characters. It's a really well-written script, and I don't like anybody. You don't like anybody. You're supposed to like him. You're supposed to like him. And I went back, and I did another draft, and literally cut out a couple of pages, cut out a couple of lines. Oh, I love these people. This is great. And that's not to say this person was, you know, the harbinger of taste or whatever, but it was, again, there was truth that was in it. You know, her her opinion did have um, really something worthy of listening to. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, Ronnie, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, and honestly, it gets me excited to do more drafts of my stuff. It makes it feel not so terrifying. And, and you know, there's something, I think you're absolutely right. There's something to like getting out of our own heads and letting go of that ego and, and uh, finding the truth of the story. Once you can get there, there's something beautiful that comes with, if there's the cathartic aspect to what we do, um, you find it on the other edge of all of that other stuff. It's really on the other end of that. It's not going through the process. The process is the process, the same process for me and you and every person else who puts pen to paper. But there's a point where, okay, it is what it is. And I'm going to pour myself into the thing. And I'm going to do that Hemingway thing where I cut my wrists and I'm bleeding all over the page. And I'm, you know, I'm given that, that it really becomes the difference between any old script and your script. I love it. Rodney Barnes, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.